Indeed, O oh God, we are a people who have been drawn by grace to the precious bleeding side of the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. We are a people who have been irresistibly drawn by the saving work of the Holy Spirit who has given us eyes to see and ears to hear. And because we now have those, we see our sin and see our need of a Savior and have embraced that Savior as our only hope of being able to stand in your presence with any righteousness whatsoever. It is his righteousness we claim. It is in his righteousness that we stand. And so, O God, as people clothed by the merit of Jesus Christ, we come. We come to tell you again that we are um, completely in your debt and pray that our lives will reflect the grand gratitude we have that you have found a way to save a sinner such as myself. Our Father, we continue to uh, grieve for our country that has been so wounded by things uh, political, by things natural, by things moral, by things social. She is a nation that is cast adrift and um, does not know how far we have sunk into a morass of sin. And so, Lord, we pray that the church of Jesus Christ would find unction to be useful to you in the advance of righteousness in our land and in the world. Our Father, give, give great wisdom to leaders in Washington that perhaps don't deserve it and don't even know they need it. But we do. We ask that you'll grant it. And for today, O oh God, for people who will stand and say, we hate this thing called the termination of life, called pro-life or pro, pro-choice. Lord, this is murder. Nothing else. We pray that your people will voice their complaint and that you will use your people to protect the unborn. Now, Father, take these monies, use them for the advancement of the kingdom of Christ, uh, every dime of it. Give those wisdom who make decisions as to how it's spent. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you. First Chronicles chapter 29, beginning at verse 1. You follow as I read, beginning at verse 1. I'll read all the way through to verse 22. And David the king said to all the assembly, Solomon, Solomon my son, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great, for the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. So I have provided for the house of my God, so far as I was able, the, the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, the wood for the things of wood, besides great quantities of onyx, onyx and stones for setting, uh, anemone, colored stones, all sorts of precious stones and marble. Moreover, in addition to all that, I have provided for the holy house. I have a treasure of my own of gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. Three thousand talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, and seven talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house. And for all the work to be done by craftsmen, gold for the things of gold and silver for the things of silver. Who then will offer willingly, consecrate, consecrating himself today to the Lord? 
Then the leaders of the fathers' houses made their freewill offerings, as did also the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of the thousands and of hundreds, and the officers over the king's work. They gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 derricks of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in the care of Jehiel the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly, for with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. Uh, David the king also rejoiced greatly. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and, the, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able to do this, to, to, to offer, to be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding. O oh Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. Oh, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandment, your testimonies and your statutes, performing all that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. Then David said to all the assembly, bless the Lord your God. And all the assembly blessed the Lord and the God of their fathers and bowed their heads and paid homage to the Lord and to the king. And they offered sacrifices to the Lord and on the next day offered burnt offerings to the Lord, a thousand bulls, a thousand rams. And a thousand lambs with their drink offering and sacrifices in abundance for all, for all Israel. And they ate and drank before the Lord on that day with great gladness. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God endures forever. You know, troops, it is, um, it is difficult to maintain a sermon series when that sermon series keeps getting interrupted. You know, we started on the 4th of September... Um, and then the 11th of September, there was that um, 9-11 uh, service that we had. And then I came back and resumed the, ceremony, the, uh, the series, and then last week was the missions conference. And so we resumed today, and next week it'll be interrupted by the, the sacraments. And then it'll resume on the 18th, and then it'll get interrupted again. And uh, I just want to remind you, even throughout all those interruptions, we're in the midst of a series. And the series is entitled, My King and My God, Living Outside the Shire. Now, m might I add that being interrupted by um, a missions conference and the Lord's Supper is not exactly a bad thing. But it is difficult to maintain in your minds what's going on when we have that kind of... So I just wanted to remind you, that's where we are. 
we're in the midst of a series about my king and my God, colon, living outside the shire. The, um, the thesis, the premise, the unifying theme of this series is this, that you and I are intended, we're designed, we're made to live as glad-hearted subjects of a good king to whose kingdom we belong. And it's there our joy will be found and nowhere else. That's the theme. Can I say it again? You and I are designed, we're intended, we're made to live as glad-hearted subjects of a good king to whose kingdom we belong, where our joy will be found and nowhere else. Now, ladies and gentlemen, when you introduce the whole idea of kingdom, and David, by the way, along with numerous other authors in the Old Testament, David was often found calling God his king. Now, that's somewhat interesting because he was a king. A king calling God his king. But when you mention the idea of king and kingdom, you are implying certain things. There is the recognition on the part of David that he belongs to a king and is a part of a kingdom. And there's implication to that. Do you understand those implications? The implications are obedience, yieldedness, submission. You know, we love to think of God as in his saviorhood and and in Christ certainly he is. But the whole idea of his being a king... And my king. That's a, that's a theme that is more rare in the evangelical world. Guys, this idea of the rule of God, the theocratic rule of God over me. We say, I mean, we pray on occasion, and you pray perhaps often, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not only do I know that it's done there, but I want it done here. Guys, when the whole idea of kingdom is mentioned, the people of God are summoned. We're summoned to obedience. We're summoned to a yieldedness and submission before the king. That's what this is about. I chose this text, this First Chronicles 29, because it has at its very center, what I think is its center, it has my series theme at the center of it. How so? I'll show you later. But I've told you that the goal of this fall series is to see us change loves. To see us redefine beauty to see us come to the place where we we define different things as beautiful David has that and and he prays for its continuance in himself and in God's people that cry of verse 18 and, and I want to read it to you again he says in verse 18 O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts towards you. There it is. 
that's the that's what I'm hoping to do with this whole series, guys. And that's David's cry for his heart and his people's heart. It's my cry for my heart and for yours. But before we come to that um, and um, look at it more closely, there's a few bushes that we need to trim so that we can get a better picture of the better, better look at the landscape of the text of the story. You know, there's some there's some preliminaries that will if if we can take a look at those for a minute, uh, a little background. That I hope that that will just kind of hurt us into the heart of the matter. But there's there's a couple of things that I want you to see. A couple of things that I want you to understand. First of all. I want you to notice the occasion. Verse 1 will tell you that this is an assembly. That is, the, the nation of Israel, its leaders had gathered for David's introduction of the new king. That's what's going on here. It's, it's, a, it's a, a called assembly so that David can introduce his successor, his son Solomon. That's what this is. And then, notice secondly, as this introduction takes place, Notice what is the primary topic, the primary subject of David's speech. <laughs> it's about what David gave. Um, he starts in verse 2 and ends in verse 5 and about what he gave. And then in verse 6, it opens up with um, how the leaders of the fathers and the leaders of the country, what they gave. Um, so the real topic of conversation in this assembly is their giving. And, and I, I would have you notice that it, it seems to be important to David that the people understand what the leaders have done. Because people will follow their leaders. But then, thirdly, I mean, the assembly, the subject is giving. And then thirdly, I want you to notice the results. Having mentioned everything that everybody gave, worship breaks out. <laughs> kind of the, um, the natural result of hearing all that. David begins in prayer in verse 10 and goes to verse 19. And then in verse 20, he calls all of the assembled people of God to worship this God. And they do. And that's what this is. It's a story about an assembled group of believing people where the main subject was giving and worship breaks out. And it's in that setting that the cry of verse 18 takes place. In the midst of all that's going on, David says, oh Keep this in our hearts, would you? Keep it in mind. Keep it in theirs. Would you do that? And that's the thing that brings us, I think, to the very heart of this series. This, this call to live outside the shire is right there in verse 18. God, do something about the loves of my heart. Would you? Would you do something about the loves of my heart? So I want you to look at this prayer with me. Um, there's a couple of three things I want you to see. And 
and we'll quit. Um, there are there are three things that I'm going to point out. I'm sure there are others than the three that I point out, but there's three things that David prays here that I think give you an insight as to how David thought. That is, David has a certain mindset, and were you and I to get that mindset, that would move us, I think, to a taste of life outside the shire. There's a mindset that, that you, can, you can see, as David prays, that you and I ought to be after. I want to, I want to view life like David views life. And that's what I want you to see. And it's that mindset that will take us to life outside the Shire. I, I, I think that's my suggestion. Do you get that? That is, if we got that mindset, that would take us to life outside the Shire. Let me show you the three things that, that jumped out at me. I'm sure there are other things, but three things. Number one, I want you to notice in verse 15 that he says, this ain't my home. Look at verse 15. He says, for we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth like a shadow and there is nobody. I ain't staying here because this ain't my home. I don't belong here. I'm just passing through on my way to my real home. The king says, I belong to another kingdom where there's a good king. He mentions that kingdom in verse 11. But, but this life is just a prelim for the real one. Because this isn't mine. I belong somewhere else. You know, guys, I read an interesting article just recently about a, a movie that I bet you've all seen. It's kind of a Christmas staple it's the, um, it's the movie they show five or six times over the Christmas holidays. It's, it's a wonderful life. You've seen that. I, Jimmy Stewart plays George Bailey. Do you remember that movie? I, surely you've seen it. I mean, it, 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 it's played and again and again and again every Christmas. And George Bailey was this dreamer. He was a guy that wanted to go places and he wanted to do great things and he wanted to make his daddy proud of him. But he ended up, of course, as you know, um, stuck in this small town as an employee of a small little savings and loan company. And he was wondering whether his life was really worth anything at all. You've seen the movie. Now, the the article went on to point out, which I thought was interesting, that um, the movie today is far more popular than it was when it came out. In 1946, when the movie came out, it was a box office disappointment. But the author of this article went on to point out that, or suggest that the reason that it's so popular today, the reason for its resurgence in popularity, is because the theme of, the, of that movie resonates with so many disappointed baby boomers who feel, they feel like George Bailey. That life just didn't turn out the way that they had planned. He quotes a psychologist whose name is Julius Siegel, who said, Countless individuals beset by trauma report that their problem is an existence that is without meaning. You know, guys, um, if this life, 
if this place is how you define home, then it's no wonder that so many of us are disillusioned. Because this just ain't cutting it, is it? Where, where did I go wrong? I've invested in so much in getting my needs met here, and, and it just ain't working out. You know that idea about I am what I own? It's just not working for me. You know, guys, every time I do a funeral that has an element of tragedy in it, you know, somebody that died at age 20 or earlier and just a, a tragic death, every time I do a funeral like that, I stand behind a pulpit and I say, Guys, this life is just a dress rehearsal for the real one. And the family nods in agreement, and it, there seems to be a measure of comfort that, you know, by reminding them, this, this is not where I belong. And everybody walks out, and they get into their cars, and they drive away, and they start living like this is the real one. They're bifurcated. <laughs> I like that word. They, they, they're living a life that's divided into two spheres. And every time they go to a funeral, they, they think, ooh, well, you know, this is not the right life. And, but it doesn't take us long to forget that. You know, I told you this story one time about that uh, Soren Kierkegaard talked about the duck church. The duck church. A church full of ducks. And uh, one fine Sunday morning, the ducks all waddled into their pews and sat down. And the, uh, the duck preacher kind of waddled out from the back and got behind his pulpit. And he opened his duck Bible and he, and he began to preach to the ducks about how life was intended to be. They were intended to soar and, and they had wings that God had given them. And, and, they, and he described life lived above the, the humdrum of the, of the dirty streets and how they could fly to the heights of the heavens. And everybody applauded and said, Amen, and preach it, brother. And then he quit and they all waddled home. I stand and I say, guys, this is just a dress rehearsal. And we say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we live like this is it. I'm simply saying that David didn't think like that. He would say, why invest here when my real home is there? You know, grabbing for the gusto just ain't cutting the mustard. How do you like that double entendre? But, you know, it, it just isn't cutting it. Maybe that's because I'm supposed to be storing up treasure. Not here. But there. Guys, listen to me. Is all we have to look forward to is a comfortable retirement? Is that it? Is that what we're living for? I don't know about the rest of you. But put me down for no interest. We just kind of save up a little more money so that we all retire and we can be comfortable. David says, I'm just a sojourner here. I belong elsewhere. The second thing that he says in verses 14 and 16, he says it a couple of times. 
He says it in verse 14, for all things come from you. He says it again in verse 16, all this abundance that we have provided for building you comes from your hand. It's all your... The second thing about his mindset is simply, all I have is God's. And that's a preposterous claim, Jimmy. That's just a bunch of religious hyperbole, right? Yeah, it is. For us. But not for him. You hear people say, the balance in your checkbook is God's. And that's just a bunch of religious hype for us. But not for David. You know, we snicker at at that kind of religious naivete. But David meant it. You know, we can view that kind of statement as some kind of predictable, budget-raising device used by preachers, telling people that everything that you have is God's. But David was no preacher, and he was raising no budget. This is a revolutionary view of one's resources, ladies and gentlemen. Revolutionary. Do you have it? You know, um, can you imagine asking one of your friends how much he makes? Hey, you've been in that job a couple of years. Tell me, give me, you know, how much do you make? Can you imagine asking that question? I mean, for most of us, uh, that, that question is indecent, if not impertinent. Why? Why? Well, because, guys, our money is sacred to us. Talking about how much you have is a private matter too personal to be discussed in good taste in public. It's a, um, it's a measure of our value. How much I have of it is a reflection of my worth. We have, we have confused worth with net worth. So we all clutch it, we all protect it, we all safeguard it, we hoard it. Because in so many ways, it has become our identity. And if, and if I don't have much of it, that's okay. Because I can still make you think I got a lot, a lot of it just via debt. I want to show you a man that who believed that everything that was in his checkbook, God had given him, and it was his. That the giver was not David, but was God. And thus, the privilege to give it was all mine. Who am I? Who am I to get this privilege to do what I'm doing here? That's how we thought. I'm not saying that we do. I'm just saying he does. And then finally, the third thing I want you to see is verse 17, which is really a bummer. Because he says in verse 17, I know, my God, that you test the hearts and have pleasure in uprightness. And the uprightness of my heart, I freely offered all these things. And now I present you. Here's what he says. Giving is a test. It reveals certain things about us, guys. It's God is the examiner and I am the examinee. I'm taking a test, and he's given it. I tell you what, let's do. 
just for fun. Don't say a word. I mean, you probably won't, but anyway. Let's just, let's just think. Let's just put in our mind's eye. Let's think about our giving this morning. Just, just this morning, okay? Now, the issue in this test is not how much you gave, but how you gave it. All right, here's the test. Are you ready? Uh, did you give gladly or dutifully? Did you give freely or grudgingly? Did you give cheerfully or unhappily? Did you give generously or miserly? Was it motivated by love or by guilt? Okay, test over. What grade did you get? Because, ladies and gentlemen, this is a test. (laughs) I'm one of the examinees, guys. I'm just telling you that that's what David said. This we know, God, that you test us in the midst of our giving and by the way, did you, um, did you happen to notice the mention of joy so frequently? Verse 9, verse 17, verse 22. And they are all ate and drank before the Lord in that day with great gladness. Giving is a test that reveals a lot about me. So tell me, what does your giving reveal about you? There's the mindset, ladies and gentlemen. It's very simple. I don't belong here. This is not my home. Everything I have is God's, and giving is a test. That's his mindset. And when you think like that, this is what you pray. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, Keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. Guys, we don't pray like this because we don't think like this. Because when that's how you think, this is how you pray. Fix my heart on you. Warm it up, God. Guys, do you see what this says about David's loves? Is this beautiful to you? I bet it is. It's beautiful to me. I'm not saying that I'm any more successful than in thinking like this than you are. But this is beautiful to me. And I think it's beautiful to you. What what does all this say about our loves? And finally, what does this say about living life outside the Shire? What What does this have to do with living life outside the Shire? Here it is, guys. For many of us, The greatest risk we're ever going to take is writing a check. Um, I'll taste just a bit of life outside the Shire when I take the risk of giving generously. Guys, you know there's a cost of not risking, don't you? The cost is boredom. The cost is staleness of life. Because the more risk you take, the more alive you feel. 
And your giving may just be one of the few times in the course of your life where you have to trust God and find out whether He is dependable, someone on whom you can rest your life. And I say to you, my dear friend, for many of us, listen, it's time to write the big check. I'm not raising money, guys. I'm inviting you to life outside the shire. I want you to put yourself in a place where you'll have to find out whether God can be trusted or not. Go ahead. Go ahead. I dare you. For some of us, the most real thing that we will ever do in terms of an expression of faith is write a check. So for heaven's sake, write it. You know, um, you know what it is that prevents us from doing that, don't you? It's fear. We're afraid. You know, life is safer in the Shire. You know, there's a book that's being passed around in Gracie Van, um, uh, and it's being studied by some of our grace groups. And the book is entitled, uh, If You Want to Walk on Water, You're Going to Have to Get Out of the Boat. I love the title. It's a good book, too. I've read it. But, you know, I, I, I'm not going to get out of the boat because, you know, it's a whole lot drier inside the boat, a little bit safer in the boat. I, I think I'll just stay in the boat. That's fine. But I need to tell you something. Jesus is out there. He ain't in the boat. You want him? You're going to have to get out of the boat. We would rather spend the rest of our lives socking away a whole lot of money that we can give to our kids that will ruin them. Think about that. We spend our careers saving money so that we can give to our kids and and ruin them. (laughs) But that's all we know to do. Because we've picked up the value system of the other kingdom. Life is just safer in the shire. It's more comfortable. And my friend, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you're going to have to give up comfort as your number one virtue and value in life. I'll tell you a quick story and I'm finished. Last May, this is kind of a gross story, so hang with me. Last May, Susie and I went out to supper after Wednesday night church. We, we always do that. I eat after I, I teach, and Susie and I usually go to the pizza cafe or whatever and, and have supper. So last May, we left church, and we went over to our little haunt, and um, we sat across the aisle from a huge man, a pathologically overweight man. He was genetically fat, medically fat. He probably had far less sin in his eating than I do. Because his problem was obviously a glandular problem. My problem is that I like to eat a lot of food. But he sat by himself, and he was eating a medium pizza, which the menu says was for two or three people. And uh, watching that man eat that thing reminded reminded me of us. And our pursuit of satisfaction via stuff, via things, 
we're already stuffed with stuff. And we know, like that man, that more of it is not good for us, and we're killing ourselves, and, and we shouldn't be doing this. But we just buy some more. Oh, miss, could you bring me another pizza? Yeah, 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 that's right, another one. I know, I know I'm killing myself. I know that this is not adding anything to my meaning or worth. I know, yeah, 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 I understand it. But bring me another one, would you? Because it's all we know to do. Guys, is this it? Is this all we got? I think I know where there's more. But you're going to have to get out of the shire. So here's my application for you. Number one. Pray that God will give us the mindset that we've just heard about instead of the one we got. By the way, I'm not telling you to emulate David. David is not our hero. Jesus Christ is our hero. But when anybody ever thinks like Jesus, we want that. So pray that God will replace the mindset we've got with this one. And here's the second step. Write the dang check. Write the big one. Go on, get out there. See if God can be trusted. You know, Chuck Swindoll tells a story about um, he went over to see a friend of his and there was a plaque above his, um, uh, of his fireplace. And the plaque said, if your heart is cold, my fireplace cannot warm it. If your heart is cold, my sermon can't warm it. Neither can nice furniture or a four-car garage or a salary with six figures, ladies and gentlemen. It won't do it. You know it. You don't you? So, pray that God would change our lives, change our loves, change our Just like David prayed, Lord, give me a warm heart and keep it that way. Our Father, I want my own heart warmed as I, uh, as I plead with your people to have hearts that beat after Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you'll do that. As David, the great Christ figure of the Old Testament, prayed for the hearts of his people, Jesus Christ is our great exemplar, and we ask that we would have a heart like his. And then, Father, grant us faith to know that life inside the boat, it might be drier, but it is boring. It's stale. And I pray that you will prompt us 
to go find you in all that you're up to outside the shire. For Jesus' sake, we ask you.